Well, we're here. We're, we're, do, we're doing a live podcast at conference. So a lot of people in the room, a lot of people in the room listening. Maybe you're watching this later or listening in your car, uh, washing dishes, whatever you're doing. But I'm glad that we are here. We've been texting about this for a long time. Uh, last year, I, I sent a text to both of you and I said, would love when Nathan, you're back in Minneapolis, that you would come, we'd have a conversation, do a podcast. And then it turned out that we were going to do this in front of a thousand people. Um, so it worked out great. And uh, Dr. Tennyson, you have been um, a dean at North Central for a long time. You have a, a new initiative that you're doing leading in the Assemblies of God. Maybe you could share a little bit about that for us. Yeah, so a new thing just, just happened to me recently. Uh, they're starting a new office uh, at the National Office for the Assemblies of God called Theological Council. And so I, I kind of have the honor of being able to fill that office for the first time. So you're, you will, will you be the official commentary of the Assemblies of God or? No, no, okay. I will not. I, I'm there entirely in an advisory capacity. I was looking forward to that, but uh, we'll see what comes of it, and uh, maybe maybe over the years we'll push you to do more writings. I know there's a lot of writings that you're going to be working on, and Nathan, obviously, sharing with us the previous session, leading Theos to you, both of you with a passion for people to grow in biblical literacy. And I think there's a lot of pastors here in the room, people who are in the church, maybe they're lay leaders, but they want to know more about the Word of God, and that's something both of you are passionate about, and I love that we get to have this conversation today. Uh, really kicking this off, and do you want to um, share that we're going to be fielding questions. I'll get them here on my phone. So I think they have a QR code they can throw on the screen, but just through a tool called Slido. But you can submit your questions. So as we talk, we want you to submit your questions. I think you can upvote the questions so that the questions that are most popular get answered. And so we want to make sure that if you have a question for either of them, I'm not planning on answering questions in this session. I know my spot, I know my lane, and uh, I'm planning on fielding them and and throwing the questions out. (laughs) And so if you have questions, make sure to submit them there. Uh, But really getting started, maybe if you could share your thoughts just on the church as a whole. I think in America, there's a lot of people who are feeling resistance maybe for the first time. And not that we've never felt resistance before. You know, Pastor Herbert talked about adversity and there's things that happen, but they almost felt normal. And, oh, that's normal. That, that happens, you know, anywhere. But now we're starting to receive resistance of traditional orthodoxy, of traditional biblical positions. People within the church are starting to diverge again. It's almost feeling like this new reformation in a bad way. And uh, there's probably people in this room who can resonate that there's people in my church that believe different things. There's people on our staff, even in this room, that believe different things. Even maybe us would believe different things. But it's gotten to the point where the divergence is no longer, those are the things that we may disagree on, but the big things are the same. Now the big rocks are starting to be shifted to where you actually ask, are you even able to remain a Christian believing those things? So maybe you could expand on that as people submit their questions. Um, what is happening in our world and, and maybe how can we, what, what can we look through in a biblical way to understand some of this divergence in the church? I can, I can start us off. Uh, I'll let Nathan correct everything I say. <laughs> um, I think in our culture to today. To be clear, Dr. Tennyson's here, you know, with Nathan. It's like we, we kind of balance. I'm like, I don't know that I can have Nathan up here without Dr. Tennyson and without Dr. Tennyson, Nathan. And so anything, any jokes that he made in the previous session, I'm like, Dr. Tennyson, can you come up, you know, the official assembly's God position, if Nathan blows something up, you know, if he says something, like, I don't want to be, like, we have the, we have the theological council of the assemblies of God up here now, so I'm like, now I have to be on my best behavior. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just noticing the way we're arranged, if this was a seesaw, you two would be up in the air. So, um... <laughs> Here's what, I, here's, here's what I would say. Uh, one, we, we live in a, in a time of extreme cultural insecurity. Uh, extreme cultural insecurity uh, in part because of economic insecurity. Uh, the generation that's coming up cannot expect to live the kind of lifestyle uh, that their parents had or that their grandparents had for, for doing the same kind of work. Uh, we live with, with, with insecurity in terms of massive cultural change Think about the things that were unacceptable 20 years ago that are acceptable now. And for a lot of us, it feels like it's happened overnight. So you have this this sense of cultural insecurity. You take the cultural insecurity and you add to that the change in information flow in our culture. So that now the way that we receive news, you can choose your news channel based on your politics and they're gonna tell you what you already believe about the world. Or, or you can be on social media, and we know that outrage drives views. 
so that we have an algorithm that's only giving you the things that are going to outrage you. So you go from this cultural insecurity to this change in information flow to finally what, what, what has been identified as sometimes just identity politics in our culture, where we have people who say that I want to know what tribe I belong to. I want to know where I feel safe, where I feel secure. And we have this identity politics that comes with a set of packaged ethics that if I'm safe with this tribe because they believe this thing, I have to accept 17 other things that that now gets packaged together. And by the way, that's not how the Bible does ethics, but we do ethics that way now that it has to be this or it has to be that. And you tell me how you feel about abortion and I'll tell you how you feel about immigration. You tell me how you feel about immigration, I'll tell you how you feel about poverty. You tell me how you feel about poverty, I'll tell you how you feel about the police, right? You, you, you give me one issue, and now I think I can say everything else about you. Right. And so when the culture has changed to that extent, what we now have is we have people coming to the church who have been discipled outside the church because of cultural insecurity, because of information flow, because of this, this strong pull of identity politics, I'm coming into the church, having been discipled outside of the church, this is what I think, this is who I am, and I think we're seeing this conflict of people coming saying, well, no, I believe this, and now I have to believe these 17 other things. And they sometimes wanna know, well, what tribe is our church a part of? And if we're not careful, we have to realize ever identifying the tribe, the church with the tribe, immediately diminishes Jesus. Because yeah. Jesus isn't a Republican, Jesus isn't a Democrat, Jesus is on the throne. Right. And what the church is, is the church is an embassy, and I always like to say this to people, church is not a museum in memory of Jesus, the church is an embassy representing the reign of Jesus. Right. And that as a church, we are an embassy that represents his reign in the world, but we're finding a lot of people coming to this embassy who simply want us to be the country where that embassy is located. Sure, sure. Okay. (laughs) That was really good. Man. um, I think uh, that's such a brilliant cultural exegesis. Um, I think over the last 400 years, like, you know, why do we, um, why do people not believe the Bible, and why have Christians departed from, uh, you know, for example, like, historic Christian sexual ethic? Like, why, why would that, why would we be talking about that now? Like, why is Paul's thorn in the flesh, him being gay. You know what I mean? Like, how is that? Why are we full of recent readings there? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. everybody sort of has their view on this, that, and the other thing. Um, and there's just such division. Well, yeah, I think the Enlightenment did a number on us, for sure. The Protestant Reformation was a reaction to abuses of the church. It was a biblical reaction, though. The Enlightenment was a secular reaction. So you have these two reactions. Um, But from a 40,000 foot level, I think what we have is a crisis of authority. Because of the historic abuses of the church, abuses of power, abuse like uh, in government, etc., it has put so much weight on the individual because now we don't trust, and postmodernism sort of really highlighted this, but all of the big stories aren't true. All of the meta-narratives are false. You know, like, right and wrong are just the political status quo. There's no such thing as right or wrong. And so you have to, this is why our culture is so obsessed with, you know, self-materializing and self-help and self-this and self-that because all the pressure is on you to figure out what's right and what's wrong. So we have a crisis of authority. And so people bring that, and it's a historic one. It's been 400 years, and it's kind of culminated in the last 100 years of, uh, and, and, and this is how Christians read the Bible. The first thing that they ask, I mean, we literally teach people this. What does the scripture mean to you? It's like, what? 
Why is that the first question you're asking of the Bible, what it means to you? Who cares what it means to you? Yeah. The first question is, what does it mean? Yeah. What is the author trying to say? <laughs> How about that, you know? So, um, now, of course, you know, there's value in reception history, but, uh, yeah, we have this crisis of authority. And I think... Um, as biblical teachers, one of our tasks is to help teach people that they have these formations, just like Dr. Tennyson was saying. We've all been formed, right? Like we have these political formations, we have these ideological formations, and people are coming into our churches fully formed ideologically. Yeah. And so they read the text through their preformations because of the crisis of authority, because all of this pressure is on them to navigate the world. Um, and so what we have to teach them is that Jesus is Lord. Yeah. And he's our authority, and his words are important. And his words, you know, I can't love Jesus and not love his words. And so we have to give up our uh, our. our you know, our autonomy, autonomous, self-law, and we have to give that to Jesus. And so that's probably why we're drifting so far away from historic, historically orthodox positions is because of the crisis of authority and now these preformations, like Dr. Tennyson. So, Yeah, and, and I, I want to piggyback off what you said because I think, I think it's brilliant. I, I think it's clear I think we have to ask ourselves, because sometimes the church has added to that crisis of authority because we haven't always interpreted Scripture with the right motives. Mm. And, and that's led, so, so for instance, you have some people coming to our church. I, I say this now, when you're reading the Bible, answer why are you reading it? Are you reading it because you want it to accommodate something? Are you reading it because you want it to preserve something? Right. Or are you reading it because you want to obey someone? What's your motivation in how you're reading Scripture, how you're interpreting Scripture? Some people come to our church, they're wanting Scripture to accommodate something. And typically what they're wanting is they're wanting Scripture to accommodate the culture they live in right now. I want Scripture to kind of justify what I've already come in with without realizing the culture you've come in with is going to be different five years from now, going to be different ten years from now. If that's what you're wanting Scripture to justify, what you're actually giving up is stability. And that's the, what the church has to offer. No matter how culture changes, the church remains the same. But sometimes what we've wanted to do in, in pushback against the accommodation is we've wanted to preserve something that isn't what the Bible's necessarily teaching. It's just the culture we came from. So let's say that I, I don't want to accommodate, you know, the 21st century, but I sure would like to preserve the 1950s. And I'm going to read Scripture in such a way that it preserves the 1950s because I think the 1950s were a simpler time because everything was in black and white. And the truth is it wasn't that the 1950s were in black and white. Everything was in color. I've always been in color. It's that your childhood was in black and white. And what you're trying to preserve is the simplicity of that, and that's not what Scripture's actually saying here. Right. Are you coming to accommodate, and that's how you're using Scripture? Are you using Scripture to try and preserve some other moment in time? Mm -hmm. Or are you using Scripture to obey what the king actually has to say? Right. Because what he has to say is always relevant for today. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's I, so good. I would totally agree. Traditionalism doesn't necessarily mean biblical. Absolutely. Yeah. Agreed. It seems that a lot of people, they, they come at Scripture through response. Right? It's not necessarily, I want to be prepared to answer this question. It's the question has come to me, and so now I need to dive in and answer that question. Can you talk about, in cases like that, many pastors find themselves there, how have you, in, a, in answering a question that maybe you don't know, how have you processed through that to not look through the lens of just trying to accomplish your idea about it. Because as people who have a good understanding of the Bible, many people who've been pastoring, who've grown up in church or whatever it is, we have a, a preconception about an idea. If someone mentions something and, you know, the top questions here are all about LGBTQ and we can get into that. Mm -hmm. But um, someone says, oh, I have a question about this. We immediately jump to what we think we know, right? But how have you, over time, and then we can start to get into some of these questions, 
how have you positioned yourself to almost rid yourself of your preconceptions to then re-study again? Or is it, no, that our preconception is the foundation and then we have to almost subvert it? Uh, <laughs> we can trade off. Yeah, fair. I mean, I don't know. I'm always learning. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, when I get asked, I get asked questions. There's a lot, I get a lot of questions on Instagram that I don't know the answers to or I'm not prepared for. Yeah, you know, you always have, you know, some of your, your template responses, but sometimes you need time to dig into them, you know. Um, I don't know. I answer questions imperfectly. And I, and because I have a public ministry, I'm continuing my education in public. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if there's any different for anybody who is holds a microphone, you know. Um, so you know, you just do your best to to try to find out. You you, you find out the first principles, you know. Uh, you you try not to dig down into peripherals. You try to you start with first principles. You just, you know so you, you have some methods. You know, I've found that in answering questions, the better I got at method, the better I got, the uh, better answers I got. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, so method is like something that, man, is my, how good is my method? Um, you know, examining your epistemology, some of your presuppositions, you get really good at that. And then if you have a good method, you can find the right answer to just about anything. But if you have a bad method, you know, vice versa. And again, yes to everything Nathan said. I feel like I'm going to say that this whole time. But <laughs> uh, we, we absolutely are lifelong students. Uh, I, I will say this, two things, and then I'm going to kind of dig a little deeper into that. Number one, if you are a pastor who is asked the same question repeatedly, at some point it's just your responsibility to have a response because there are some questions that are questions of the culture and the community, and they're looking to the church for answers. Mm. And if you don't know the answer to a question a lot of people are asking, they're not going to assume you don't know the answer. They're going to assume the church doesn't know the answer. And they're going to look somewhere else for that answer. So we do have a responsibility. Okay. On the other hand, that doesn't mean you're going to know everything. Mm -hmm. And, and I do think it's important. I love to go to the example of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, where he's trying to relay this experience of a man caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body, out of the body, I don't know. He says that twice because he doesn't have a theology for souls separate from bodies, because that's not a Jewish theology. So he's, he said, you know, I, I was in heaven. I don't, I don't know how that works. But he said, I don't know, which means I don't know is a biblical answer. And it's okay to say there are some things that are beyond the limits of what we know. Mm. It's okay to say, I don't know. I need to go back. I need to study this. But if the same thing keeps coming up, at some point we have that responsibility to be able to say, I need to have an answer to this. Ask our pastor friends, how have you answered this? How do you deal with this? Uh, but the other thing that you said that I so love is sometimes we just have to go back to those first principles that I may not know the answer to this question, but I still know the gospel. And I want to make sure that the questions you're asking, it's not just do we have answers to your questions, it's also are you asking the right questions in your life? Are you looking at things the way they should be seen? Are you majoring on the minors or minoring on the majors? And sometimes we have to help people readjust. Like, I don't have an answer to this question right now, but what I do know is this. Mm. And I want to help you see the importance of what we already know. That's good. Right. Neither of you right now are, are, are in a congregation. You're in an educational capacity, pastoring other pastors, teaching. Um, we can't get into all the majors, right, of here's the majors, here's the minors, this is what you have to believe. But maybe could you help some people in this room to know how, how aligned should I be to my lead pastor in my theological beliefs? How, how divergent can I be? Do I have to be somebody who believes everything that they believe? Or, or, or how can I, and, and again, it's a hard question to answer, but when you're under the authority in a congregational setting, again, in an education field, mm -hmm. it's kind of the diversity of thought is welcomed. But in a church where you have a lead pastor who believes something and who is, is leading in a cause, 
how would you advise people who are on the team of how in alignment they need to be? I guess as an organizational leader, you should know what your non-negotiables are, for sure. Um, you know, what are your distinctives? What are your non-negotiables? You, you define what are close-handed and open-handed issues, and then people that you hire, you know, I, I think Augustine is, is credited with it. I don't know if it's an Augustine quote, but you know that one. Um, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty and all things charity. Correct. Yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. Because it's the first thing that came to mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the one, yes. Yeah. <laughs> See, we're in, we're in sync. That's yeah. what that means. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, you define the essentials. Um, and then you define the things that you don't need to be, you know, for, for me, uh, with Theos U, we have essentials. And... Um, a non-essential would be, you know, somebody's view on God's sovereignty. You know, like half of my faculty are Reformed. I'm not a Calvinist, but half of us are. You know, uh, half of my faculty are hardcore capital C complementarians. I'm like a small C complementarian, but you know, th that's not an essential for us. Um, so, you know, you have to be able to define what the essentials are for you and what, you know, maybe, maybe paedo-baptism is an essential for you. For me, it's not an essential, but for some congregations it is, you know. Um, so, yeah, you, you, you got to know that stuff. You need to articulate that stuff, I think, you know. Yeah, and I would say, too, your responsibility as a pastor is the unity of the church. And that unity means that you're not trying to create disunity and public disagreements with your authority, mm -hmm. right? The person doesn't mean that the lead pastor is going to be right on everything. Of course they're not, because they're not Jesus. Right. But it does mean that you're there to support the unity of this community. You're there to support the vision of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And so the way I would probably describe it is this, this is not my thing. I learned this from another person, so I can't take credit for this. But there's something called theological triage. And theological triage is you decide on an issue based on whether it's a number one, a number two, or a number three. A number one means this is an issue that is so serious that I don't think you're a Christian unless we agree on this. So say resurrection of Jesus. You're like, I'm a Christian, but I don't think Jesus rose from the dead. I'm going to be like, oh, I've got questions, right? I mean, that, that's the number one for me. Right. Number two is we can disagree on this and still be Christians, but we may not be able to worship together. So example, I'm an egalitarian, right? So a complementarian might say, look, I can't go to a church that has a female pastor. Now, I, I still believe you guys are Christians, but I can't go to a church with a female pastor. They're saying that's not a number one issue, that's a number two issue. A number three issue is when you say we can worship together and still disagree. Like, you can sit next to me, I sit next to you. We have different uh, uh, opinion on this particular issue of, say, eschatology, but you know what? It's fine. We can still worship together. It doesn't affect anything. So I think you have to determine, you know, what do you see as a number one, a number two, or number three? But as a church leader, also, what does your pastor see? What does your lead see as a number one, a number two, a number three? Yeah. Because I don't want to be teaching something that goes against their even number two. Because this is what we're doing here as a community, as a church, and I can't teach something that goes against the number one. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if you feel that we have reached this place where we're no longer in that kind of alignment for the sake of the unity of the church, because God cares deeply about our unity. Mm -hmm. He cares about our unity, he cares about our maturity, and he cares about our ministry. Right, these are the three things that come from Ephesians 4, right? If we can maintain that and say, look, sometimes I may have to leave because we're not in alignment, or you're like, you know, I, I just disagree with you, and I'm going to keep this to myself, and he's fine with that, or she's fine with that, because I, I am an egalitarian. She may be fine with that, and you say, okay. It's good. Paul and Barnabas. Yeah. The band had to break up. <laughs> you know, like, that's, that's going to happen. It seems yeah. like Peter and Paul had their differences. Yes. You know? So that's, there's biblical precedent for leading different ways. And sometimes, even leadership issues, it's okay to not like the way somebody drives. You ever, like, driven with somebody? And 
the, they just keep on riding the brake and it makes you sick. <laughs> right? And, and you get to the same destination, but they just make you nauseous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's okay. I think that was the Paul Barnabas thing. And it's just like, Paul, your leadership is making me ill. Yeah. And, and, and I'm just, and to look what happened, Paul entered a whole new level of ministry yeah. in that separation. So in the end, God blessed the separation. Yeah. In terms of issues one, two, three, as you, you talked about, in the t topic and conversation, you know, at the time of this recording, it's Pride Month, LGBTQ, it's one of the more brought up things, even in the questions here, a lot of questions about this, whether it be related to kids or how to preach from it from the pulpit. But can you both share maybe in your own view of how you've thought of yourself to, to approaching this question, maybe even from a, from a pastoral sense, a, a platform sense, because I think a lot of people are going to have different views about attending a wedding or having a conversation with someone, or if it's in their family, I'm sure in this room, if we had people raise their hands, how many people have someone in their family that would identify this way, that, that there'd be a lot of hands. But when you talk about, as a pastor, from a pastoral standpoint, our responsibility to stay true to Scripture, and maybe even answering, in your view, without making assumptions, is this a one issue where it's, you can't be a Christian if you believe in in that you can identify that way and still honor God and, and be unrepentant or, or however it is. Can you expand on those thoughts? Yeah, I can, I can start off here. Um, I, I will say that I want to be sure that I say one, two, and three, so there's one, but there's something else that says wherever you come into Christ, you come in as you are at that moment, and we give Christ time to make the changes in your life. So, so as a pastor, I have a guy come, come to my office, just as an example, a guy come to my office and let's say, you know, he's wearing a dress. He is, uh, identifies in a particular way. His mom has passed away and they never reconciled before her death. And he says, I need to talk to someone. Am I going to look at him and say, well, let's talk about the dress issue first. No, I'm not going to reduce him to that. He's coming to me as a grieving son, and I need to address him as he is and as he's come. And I've had members of my congregation who come in, and they come in because God is dealing with another area of their life, and they recognize they need Christ for this. I give time, but I also don't hide the truth from them. And, and I will say this, there have been times when I've been preaching where, you know, we, we preach about sex and we preach about sexuality. What I always tried to do is not talk about sex in light of sin first, but talk about sex in light of humanity. Because the only time people ever hear conversations about sex is when you're talking about sin. Sex itself has negative associations. You know, I, I think sometimes like the, the church that says to young people in youth group, all they ever say about sex is don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And then they get married and everyone in the church is like, have a good time. You know, it's like, what was that? You know, I mean, it was like some whiplash. All I've heard this whole life is this other thing, you know. And by the way, it's funny, as a pastor, I've dealt with couples who have actually had senses of guilt in their marriage because of the associations they make with sex. So I would try to, by the way, it's not answering your question. I try to talk about sex first, like what does it mean for as a humanity? We're created in God's image. We're called to be fruitful and multiply. This is an expression of what it means to be in the image of God. How do we understand that? But then also to say, but because of that, we have to bear witness to what God intends this to be, what God intends this to look like. As an embassy, I'm not trying to change the laws of the outside country. But in the embassy, the laws of the kingdom of that embassy apply. And in this embassy, I want to say we're called to bear witness to the way God has created the world, and we're going to maintain that witness. Um, I love your pastoral instincts, by the way. Um, that's really, I, I, um, and, I, and I want to preface that with um, my concern in this conversation at the moment is that, not this conversation, but the conversation that's happening in the church, and I'm going to speak to evangelicalism um, 
and not the periphery. Um, but that there is an anthropologically centered epistemology um, in how we do our theology. And what can it you, means... Can you pause yeah. for so, a second? Yes. <laughs> and, and by the way, underneath all of your chairs is a test. Yeah. We're going to have you take that right at the end of this. Anthropology. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain it. Anthropologically centered epistemology. And essentially what it means is you're thinking about people first and the Bible second. And um, so I, th I think it's important to be rationally compassionate. I think empath the empathy cult is exactly that. I think it's become a problem. Um, but for example, I'm reminded of Jesus, you know, in The Woman at the Well. I mean, he talked about her sexuality in the first conversation they ever had. Mm. Um, the rich young ruler, I mean, Jesus identified his idol in the first conversation and reduced him to idolatry. So I think that there are times that the Holy Spirit wants to give somebody an opportunity for freedom. And I wonder if we so don't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit that we don't give them that opportunity because we don't think that the gospel is good news or that the, it's the power of God unto salvation for people who believe. Um, I'm reminded of the beginning of, of Romans where when Paul's asked about the gospel, he talks about, about Greek sexuality. Mm -hmm. I mean, he just goes there. Um, so I think there's got to be both. You know, like if I have a guy in my office, man, I want to identify, I want the Holy Spirit to help me navigate some of those issues, like, you know, you, 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 it's that issue there, and I, let's deal with that, rather than, you know, re, re, rebuking him for wearing a dress, and that's what you were talking about. Um, but at the same time, I think that we, like, the good news and, and repentance, which is this beautiful thing, is often on the other side of a hard word that we're unwilling to give. But God, and the miracle is often on the other side of the hard word. I mean, remember Jesus, you know, he's, he's talking he's, you know, to his rejection in Nazareth, and he brings up the widow of Zarephath, and he brings up Naaman. I mean, they got hard words. Mm. Remember Elijah's like, yeah, go and make me a pancake first. She's like, this is our last pancake. We're going to eat it and die. He's like, so feed me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, no pastor would give that word in today's evangelicalism. Because I think we've become, we've tipped the scales to become anthropologically centered in our epistemology, and we're so sensitive about people. Rather than going, this is a God word, it's a hard word, but, but if this, but God is doing something in this person's heart, and this is going to release faith and repentance for them. Naaman, I mean, is a, another great example. Just like a hard word, you know? Like, dude, I don't want to do it this way. No, you're doing it this way. Your, your, your cleansing is on the other side of this ridiculous ask. So, yeah, uh, I think that there's a, there's a balance to be struck, you know? Um, I don't think we need to dishonor people. I, I'm really sensitive. Like when, when I'm at a restaurant and I accidentally misgender somebody, I know that, you know, I'm, I don't even know if I believe in gender accommodation, like Preston Sprinkle says, you know. I don't know if I believe in that, but I just don't want to go out of my way to hurt people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you can see these people are clearly struggling. They're clearly, you know, I don't want to make their day suck because I'm some fundamentalist jerk, you know? So, um, but if somebody is, there's a difference between that and somebody who is wanting to come to Jesus and God's doing a work in their life. So I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to work that out. Um, but I think there's, that, there's a balance, isn't there? Yeah, and I think we have to be very careful not to do a bait and switch. 
And what I mean is, is that you get the person who comes to your church, and after two years, they still don't know what you believe. And they can percent. be hurt by that, right? Because percent. they're like, well, I, I thought it was this, and it was, and part of it is because you're not talking about the issues. Yeah. Now, I, I do agree, and I, we don't disagree on this. We don't want to reduce people yeah. to this particular thing or that particular thing. We also don't want to hide what we believe. Yeah. And, and sometimes as pastors, this is where you have to have those answers. I don't know if you've ever gotten the walk, because I've gotten the walk as a pastor where I get done preaching and suddenly someone is walking towards the pulpit in a way that I'm like, oh, I'm about to get yelled at, right? Because we just talked about something. And this person is like, we need to talk about this. You can tell by the walk we're about to have a conversation. Yeah. But if you have enough of those, you know how to handle those conversations. You know how to have that dialogue. You know that person might be at the moment where that walk is, could be a walk towards repentance. Yeah. You know, a walk started in anger sometimes end on their knees. And, and this is where this is headed. Wow. It could be a walk that's going to keep going straight out the door. Yeah. You know, I've had people before, it, it, this is a horrible story, but when I, when I got done preaching, someone got up, went to the back door, looked at me, and waved. <laughs> because we had been dealing with something. Yeah. And they knew that, that, you know, I just need to make sure you see me so that you know I'm never coming back. Mm. And your conversations have to be willing to say that could also happen but that walk could be a walk of repentance. Right. And that person who walks out might still come back. Right. They need to know who you are, but they need to know that you see them for who they are. That's yeah. good. Yeah, it's the classic tension of grace and truth, right? And I think what I'm hearing from both of you is you have to be intentional about it, right? You can't, you can't just pick a lane and go down that lane and say, I'm the truth guy or I'm the grace person. You know, you can't do that. Uh, but it's, it's, it needs to be done every day. You need to recognize it every day for yourself. I think the, another tension that people feel is how it will be perceived by the world. Um, I was listening actually on this topic, listened to a, a talk, an hour long, from a man who identified to be struggling with same-sex attraction. And at the end of it, he made a call. He was talking to pastors, and he made a call, and he said, you have to ask yourself this question in response to the former, which is, I don't want to lose my witness because of a stance. And what he posed is he said, you have to know what your line is in order to lose your witness. Is that line not the word of God? If you're not willing to lose your witness for the word of God, then what are you willing to lose your witness for? So I think in that place, there are people who are afraid, you look at this, the FX documentary, you look at all these pastors that are blown up on YouTube about criticizing them, right? People are afraid to be labeled that. They don't want to be labeled this or whatever it is, or they don't want their volunteers or their former interns to, to, to end up in a documentary, right? Mm -hmm. So because of that, they're afraid, and so maybe they internally are going to share with their teams what they believe. Externally, they're going to preach on it once or twice, but they're not going to follow the, the response of being too bold or being too loving or being too whatever it is. And again, you can we could label people if that was our intent, which it's not. But what would be your advice to people who are afraid of the, not even, not even afraid of the biblical position? Because I think many people in this room, and maybe there's watching online that, that would have different beliefs on this, but they're not afraid of their position, but they're afraid of the perception of their position. And so because of that, they say, on an individual level, I'm happy to have this conversation. I'm not going to mislead people who've been here for two years. But the news is watching, but the world is watching, social media is watching, and I've seen too many documentaries that I'm just going to stay in my lane. Okay. I would like to say that I drank a bottle of water and a root beer, and I need to use the toilet. I'll be right back. <laughs> Good timing, too. I, I, believe, I believe him when he says it, but it's convenient timing, certainly. I, ju I just want to say, had I known that was the case, I would have immediately gone to a story about the flood. 
Sure. And then just kept going on and on and on. Well, I was actually thinking about it. 40 days and 40 nights. I was thinking about it. I'm like, ah, I have to use the bathroom too. So like, and then he just gets off stage. I'm like, I could have done that. And here I am. Uh, I'll, I'll say this. I, I, I'm going to answer your question as, as well as best I can here. Be ready to be misunderstood because the world only understands the church when the church acts like the world. The world does not understand the church when the church acts like the church. And we have to realize that, that we follow a Messiah who was constantly misunderstood because there were just a handful of categories, you know? Are you Herodian? Are you a Sadducee? Are you a Pharisee? Are you an Essene? Are you a Zealot? And it's like, well, he preaches revolution. Well, therefore he's a Zealot. No, no, no. He also hangs out with sinners. Well, he's a Herodian. No, no, no. He also goes in the temple. He's a Sadducee. No, no, no. He also does baptism. Well, he's a Pharisee. It's like, oh, come on, Jesus, pick a lane. And the problem was we're trying to fit Jesus in our categories. That's where all those questions were coming from in the gospel. They're litmus test questions, trying to figure out which side Jesus is on. <laughs> oh, see, I thought you were clapping for me. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Listen, I'm talking about Jesus. I was dying. And they start clapping because you came back from the restroom. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, I, just to say, the church understands, the world understands the church when it acts like the world. It's going to misunderstand the church whenever it acts like the church because the church will never fit into the categories the world provides. Mm. That's really good. Yeah, uh, I was, um, this is a, a great question. This is, I think this is, this is the question that every, everybody's trying to find that threshold, you know, of how public, I'm, I'm literally helping a, a pastor this week work on a sermon for next week. Um, and I guess part of my brain is like, I don't know if I would ever preach on this for, on a Sunday morning. Because that's a whole philosophy in and of itself is, you know, like, I don't know if this is a, if this is necessarily something that we need to hit on, on a big level. Maybe I do it on a Wednesday night or I do it in a small group curriculum or, do you know what I mean? So, um, I understand that threshold and not because I wouldn't want to, but I just would be like, I just feel like it's not everybody, it's not, you know what I mean? It's like such a, a small amount of people that maybe would need to hear it or whatever, and maybe it's more of a pastoral issue. It's, it's kind of like I wouldn't necessarily do a sermon on, um, you know, I don't know, some other niche thing or maybe like a, a, some sort of niche mental health issue or whatever, if, if that makes sense. And I'm not trying to compare the two, I'm just saying. So, um, so I, I understand that threshold. Um, I was part of a church that we didn't talk about it at all. We told everybody, you know, belong before, you can belong before you believe. And then we found out that we had a gay choir director three years later, you know? And it's like, well, I thought that I could just belong before I believed. And it's like, well, we didn't mean that. <laughs> um, so your messaging is pretty important. We weren't trying to say that, but that was just something that the pastor at the time thought was, was how he wanted people to feel. Mm -hmm. But did, he did lie to the congregation. Um, I heard about um, uh, John Bevere uh, went and preached for a, 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 a guy who I won't say, and John just, you know, was just being John. You know, he, he's a Bible teacher, and Bible teachers will talk about, you guessed it, the Bible. And <laughs> And so he hit on something, I think, in Romans 1. It was kind of an aside. And then, you know, the pastor was just like the next Sunday, you know, was in tears to his congregation just going, you know, I told you that this would be a safe place. I'm like, but it's a church too. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so, uh, I don't know. Like, what do, you, we, do we protect people from the Bible? I don't know what the exact threshold is. I think it really depends on your ministry philosophy and what a Sunday, what, what, how you define a win. You know, and I th I'm okay with different churches defining a win on Sunday mornings differently. Like, there's some churches that they're going to be, uh, you know, they're going to they're going to work through the text 
from Genesis to Revelation, and they're going to hit everything. And then some churches are going to be like, you know, we're, we're going to be a soul-winning church, and we're just going to preach, you know, John 3.16 every Sunday, and that's what we're doing on Sunday mornings, and that's how we feel called to serve our church. So I think it really depends on your ministry philosophy in terms of how you are, how you are in terms of how out there you are on your stances, on your stance on sexuality, on your stance on this, that, and the other thing. Um, but I know that like that, that threshold is a huge conversation that people are having. And, you know, I think the end of the day, yes, be a faithful witness, number one. Number two, don't confuse people with your messaging. But number three, what do you think your church is called to be? Who do you think your church is called to be? You need, I think you need to answer that question. And then that'll answer the question for you, you know. Yeah, and I would say, I want to go back even to the grace and truth uh, issue that you raised. Grace and truth shouldn't be ever in tension, uh, because the truth that we have is all about grace, right? And, and, and grace really is the foundation here of truth. That's the character of the gospel and the character of God. When we see them in tension, it's sometimes it's just because we don't want the truth. Mm. So we don't recognize it as grace. And I'm about to say something really harsh Please don't be offended by this, even though I'm talking about myself. But if I go to the doctor, and the doctor looks me up and down and says, man, Mr. Tennyson, you need to lose weight. I don't look at the doctor and go, you bigot. <laughs> you just don't like fat people. No, no, he's telling me something I need to hear, right? And, and there is a grace to that and saying, you've come to me for help, mm. I'm looking at your health, I'm saying this is what you need to do. But on the other hand, if I come in and I sit down and I'm in my robe, and he brings in a bunch of people, and he's like, hey, look at this porker, you know, and they're like, you know, poking at me, I'm like, well, man, that, that doesn't yeah. feel good. Yeah. Could you have done this another way? Yeah. And so I think on the one hand, we, we have to say, there's only tension when the tension is in our hearts. Right. I don't want to hear the truth. Or when we deliver the truth in such a graceless way that people don't feel like they're being saved, they feel like they're, and, and again, I don't want to say attack because I do think we do have an issue where it's just you just don't want to hear the truth. Yeah. But I do think there are people who feel like the way the church is giving the truth, they're not giving them a possibility for Christ. Right, sure. Right, that, that our message isn't ending in a sense of the gospel. Right. It's ending in a sense of we're better than you. Right. And, and I think we have to look at both, although I think in our culture today, the problem I do think is more on this end. Right, and I, and I think the challenge that a lot of people are feeling is that in the example that you shared, that the first example of the doctor coming in gets the reaction of the second example, which is, mm -hmm. you know, fill in the blank, whatever it is. Oh, well, that yeah. was shaming. That was evil. That was, that was the equivalent of bringing in a bunch of people in the room and pointing your finger at me, even though you told me the truth. So I think that there are, are people that are, are reacting much differently, reacting more viscerally or more personally to those things. And so people are more afraid to speak on these. And, and a follow-up to that, I, how much weight would you put towards the things that are happening in your region, in your state, in your area, from the congregation that people are, that you're leading, that what they're asking. Because I mean, even right now, you brought up Nathan. I don't know if that's an issue that I would teach on the weekend, but I think you should ask yourself what church, but even in this room, I mean, it's the number one question by far, which certainly means it's the number one question that's, that's in people's congregations, or one of them. Things that are passed in our state, laws that are passed in our state that are making it harder to be a, a believer in some sense, maybe not to believe, but to, to teach your children. And I think a lot of this goes into kids pastors and youth pastors who are dealing with things at a different level than people who are maybe leading in adult ministries. But what would you say to those who maybe live in environments to where the things of God again, although we're not political, we're an embassy of heaven, you know, we're we're a part of his kingdom. The things that are happening in our state, in our country, in our world, are impacting the way that our people are living their lives in their workplace. They've maybe never had to admit their, their faith in their workplace before and risk being fired. We looked at the vaccine, I mean, all sorts of things. This is banned on YouTube now, but um, all, all of... <laughs> 
people are now having to decide when they've not had to decide. So then what happens is a lot of people in our congregations bring it to the church. Well, you got to talk about that. You got to talk about receiving this. You got to talk about these issues. And I think to your point, Nathan, for some people, they say, well, that's who I am. That's who I'm called to be. But, but kind of to your question earlier, Dr. Tennyson, if people are asking you the question over and over and you don't know the answer about, Bible, about, about it in the Bible, how much weight should we put towards an issue that is risen, that is brought up over and over and over again that you've not yet addressed to your congregation? Oh, I, I'm 1,000% there. I, I totally agree. If, you, if somebody's asking, if pe- so obviously the culture's asking the question, so answer the freaking question. Do you know what I mean? So it needs to be answered in some form. That's, that is without a doubt. If you are not answering questions that, culture, that, that the church is asking, you are derelict in your duty. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean, once again, that it has to be on a Sunday morning, is all I'm, is all I'm saying, or sure. posturing. Or, or I'll piggyback on this. Yeah. If, if someone, I, I am concerned, and I'm, I'm going to say both because I agree with everything you said, again, but on the one hand, if we aren't able to deal with difficult questions, people are going to assume the church is not the place for these kinds of adult conversations. Correct. Right. And sometimes where I feel like we've lost certain, a generation or, or a, is that kids who have gone through youth group have never had difficult conversations in youth group. Right. They go, say, to a secular college where for the first time they're taught how to have an adult conversation, right. and they think adult conversations happen outside the church, not in the church. Right. On the other hand, we also can't let the political issue of the day take over the message of the gospel that we have. Right. And that now we become a church where all we ever talk about is what's ever happening on Facebook or what's ever happening in the news. No, we have a message that the world has to hear. Yeah. What we want to do is find a way of putting these together that I want to talk about this issue. We can have an adult conversation. The gospel is big enough for whatever happens in our culture. Yeah. And we can show how this connects, but however it connects, that conversation still needs to end with the gospel yeah. and not be taken over by this other conversation. Yeah. One of the critiques that other denominations have had of Pentecostals is this somewhat lackadaisical approach to Scripture and teaching, right, to where it's yeah, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and if you do that, get up on the platform, teach, and obviously I'm painting a broad brush here, but I do think that there are other denominations that would say, well, we value the Word, and you have to, I mean, some, some places you need to have a doctorate or for sure a master's degree in order to teach and, and preach. When you think about some ways that we as, as predominantly in this room as Pentecostal, you know, there's definitely some that aren't, but you know, last night, Pastor Herbert's message, you know, you probably got baptism of the Holy Spirit, you know, if you're a Baptist in here, so, and you're back today, so. Um, but what would you say to people who maybe have that critique of the Pe- Pentecostal, non-denominational church, oh, the, you know, you're part of just, you, you don't really think about the Bible very deep, so you're not even, you haven't had these conversations for the last hundred years, you've just all been focused on the Holy Spirit, and now you're starting to have these conversations, whereas us over here, we've been having these conversations since Luther. What would be your response to that? Well, I'll answer as a Pentecostal, and as someone that that my dissertation was on, which I rarely ever get a chance to talk about my dissertation. The movie has not come out yet. Is there a PDF download in the app of your dissertation? But it was about the first, the development of theology in the first 30 years of the movement, and, and what I found in, in, is that early Pentecostals were very concerned about Scripture. They were not anti-education, they were anti-elitist. What they were concerned about was saying someone had to spend this many years before they could study Scripture and be used by God in this way. And they saw there was kind of a class struggle that, that, that was a part of this, but they were never anti-Scripture. They never let experience lead Scripture, and in fact, going all the way back to Azusa Street, There were practices that some Pentecostals were doing that as soon as the Azusa Street Revival took off, the pastor, William Seymour, said, if we can't find it in Scripture, we're not allowed to do it in church. We're not going to allow spiritual manifestations to take over. It has to be whatever's biblical. And so Scripture was a controlling narrative for even the way they did experimental worship to make sure that if we don't see the Spirit doing it in a similar way in the Bible, we're not going to let it happen here. And so they took Scripture very seriously. 
Uh, that's why they created their own Bible colleges in the first generation. A community that doesn't take Scripture seriously doesn't create Bible colleges. Now, they created them because they didn't trust the other Bible colleges that weren't Pentecostal, <laughs> but they still created those colleges. Yeah. They still wanted to make sure that ministers were well-equipped for ministry, that they didn't just send people out and, and then they would just blow up because they didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. And so there has been that concern. That doesn't mean that there's not a sense that over the years that there hasn't been a lessening of that or that we haven't seen people who have blown up because they're just great with the microphone, even if they're not great with the Bible. And that doesn't mean that we don't have examples like that. But I would say at least for early Pentecostals, they would say scripture was their most important thing. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I'm, I'm not a Pentecostal. I'm a, I'm a charismatic for sure. I'm an unreliable charismatic as well though. Um, <laughs> But uh, Chris Palmer is the dean of our, our school, and he is a die-in-the-wool Pentecostal. And um, he made a remark at an address recently about how, you know, same thing, where Pentecostals weren't anti-intellectual. They were just reacting to German higher criticism that was, you know, metastasizing throughout the seminaries in, in, you know, in the world. Um, and basically, you know, the demythologizing movements and, you know, basically you, you wind up with the Thomas Jefferson Bible where there's, you know, all the spiritual things and all the miracles are gone and you just, you just have the maps, you know. Um, <laughs> and Pentecostals were like, you know, they read the Bible and they're like, well, I think we're supposed to believe this stuff. I think we're supposed to believe all of it. I think we're supposed to believe that miracles are supposed to happen and signs and wonders. And, you know, so um, I think that um, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Theos you, I'm a charismatic, and Theos you is, I think, similar to the Pentecostal reaction in that we are reacting against woke theological progressivism that's, you know, that I believe uh, is in the same way. It's sort of, it's metastasizing throughout a lot of our Bible colleges. Um, I, I think that, dis, I think that um, deconstruction is a political movement. Nobody deconstructs and becomes a Republican. <laughs> I've, I've never heard of it. Um, <laughs> And I, I'm a Canadian. I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. I'm just saying I don't know anybody who's deconstructed and joined a conservative political movement. Um, so that's interesting. Um, it's how they proselyte. They literally how they proselytize Christians to vote for for them. And um, and 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 I think that um, you know, as I was I was watching a lot of Bible colleges, you know, kind of politically in the last number of years. Um, I was just, you know, on, on, on all kinds of different things. I, I just, I've, I've, we are not anti-academic, and I don't believe that conservative or evangelicals are, are anti-academic. It's just that the academy is wrought with, I mean, a humanities degree is basically, you know, a communist manifesto now. That's what's essentially what has happened. Uh, the humanities departments are overrun with, ideologues. Um, they're, they're, it's a Marxist's playground. Um, and then our, our, our profs who are, are, you know, our theologians who, you know, operate in, 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 in these realms and read recent literature and the way that the education works is you kind of have to have these conversations academically with all of the recent, you know, academics and then they begin to cherry pick and, and enjoy some of the Marxist buffet and then begin to incorporate it into their Sistio. You start reading, you know, anyways, I don't like Gutierrez, I don't like James Cohn for obvious Marxist reasons, or maybe they're not obvious, but I think that, that our reaction has been a similar reaction to the early Pentecostals in that it's like, hey, there's some things that are going on, something reeks in Denmark, and it's not biblical. I think the Bible has 
ways, paths forward for reconciliation. I think that the Bible has paths forward um, for uh, men and women and equality and equity. And I get my, I get my terms you know, the Bible informs my idea of equality, not Karl Marx. Um, and I think that pastors need to have biblical definitions of, of, of what justice is, not Marxist definitions of what justice is. And so there has to be theological movements that begin to push back against uh, uh, the, you know, applied postmodernism. Um, and it's, it's almost, you know, wide acceptance um, in many of our theological institutions. And to me, that is what the beauty was of the Pentecostal movement, is that it returned to Bible, and it was and Bible solutions um, rather than, you know, the German higher critic solutions. Anyways. <laughs> I'm clearly passionate. <laughs> but how do you feel, Nathan? <laughs> 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 well, as we close this conversation, which I'm sure we could have for another few hours, but what is something that scares you as you look ahead into, maybe in your own circles, it's hard to criticize the, you know, some people ask, what scares you about the global church? It's like, well, I don't know, because I don't know much about the global, I mean, to, to have a, a true understanding of what's happening in the global church is very difficult. Mm -hmm. But you can certainly have an understanding of your context and your community and your tribe, so to speak. What is something that's, that scares you that you think is a warning maybe that whether it be pointed in Scripture or something that you see, but then also what do you think if we grab a hold of this that would help us to accelerate and advance the cause of Christ in our tribes and in our circles in a much greater way? Yeah. I'll go first. Nothing scares me about the global church. And here's why, because it is almost totally Pentecostal. It's almost totally biblical. Like the global South, these churches that are, that, like there's revival happening all over the world right now. And like, the, it, it, America scares me, you know, like. <laughs> that, that's what I'm concerned about. But like, you wanna talk about the global church? The global church is on fire right now. There's an amazing book. Um, by John G. Allen. Um, he was the Vatican correspondent for years, and he wrote a book called Future Church. I don't know if you've read it, but it's an amazing book. And in there, there's a chapter on Pentecostalism, and he's basically writing to Catholics, and he's saying, hey, do you guys want to know about Christianity that's happening throughout the world? It's Pentecostal. Mm -hmm. Like, Christianity, Pentecostalism is, is going to, by 2050, it will surpass Catholicism in terms of, you know, and it's just, it's growing like rapid fire everywhere. So the global church is in really safe hands. Jesus is still walking among the candlesticks. He's still like, you know, he's still in charge of it. He's running it. It's, it's insane. I'm, I'm so excited about the, the future of the global church. And I hope that we can be more like the global South church that's, that prays, sees miracles, witnesses, is growing, you know, and loves the Bible. So, one, one funny story. I, I was uh, teaching it in Southern California when I was a pastor there at Azusa Pacific, and I had a, a student once come up to me halfway through the class. She was not from the U.S. She was from Nigeria. And she said to me, I want you to know, because I'd always tell the class I was a pastor in town, you know, here's, here's my church. She said, I visited your church for the first time this Sunday. And I said, oh. And she says, yeah. She said, I got to be honest with you. She said, where I'm from, the word Pentecostal means cult. And when you identified yourself as a Pentecostal pastor, I was like, oh, no, my professor is a cult leader. <laughs> She said, and then over the course of the semester, I really enjoyed your lectures, and I'm like, oh, no, I'm being taken in by this cult leader. <laughs> and she said, so I decided to come to your church. And she said, and she was identifying the things that our church did, the way you worship, the way people would move, the, 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 you know, what you would. She said, is that what you mean by Pentecostal? I said, well, well, to an extent, yeah. She goes, oh, well, that's what we do in the Anglican church in Nigeria. Right. She said, well, I guess I'm a Pentecostal, too. Yeah. And you'll be surprised when you travel the world how similar the worship has become yeah. uh, because of this. Mm -hmm. now, now, what scares me about the American church, because I do have an answer to that, is the lack of intentional discipleship. Mm -hmm. 
Amen. That in the American church, we're, we're bringing in people who are being discipled elsewhere, and they're simply coming in attendance. Right. And what happens is when you have undisciplined disciples, they'll always lead to unconverted converts. So people join the church without there being any real change in their lives. Right. And at some point, people start to say, really, what's the point? Mm -hmm. Because I can get more out of here than I can in here, and I'd like to sleep in on Sunday morning. Yeah. And I think when you have a church that's not doing intentional discipleship, you have a church that may be two or three generations away from, from just not existing. Wow. Well, this conversation has been amazing. Have you enjoyed this conversation? <laughs> Luckily, we have microphones and cameras to record so we can share this later with people uh, and hopefully help out far more people than even who are in this room. Uh, but it's been an amazing conversation, lots of questions. Hope to do it again sometime soon. And uh, it's been a privilege to be here talking church live you. with everyone here. <laughs>